the fitnas. The violent and turbulent side to the Arab conquests was laid bare in 644 when the second caliph, Umar, was murdered by an enslaved Persian soldier called Piruz Nahavandi, also known as Abu Lulu'ah. The man went on a rampage during morning prayers at the Mosque of the Prophet, Al-Masjid al-Nabawi, in Medina, slashing out with a double-edged knife and fatally wounding seven people, including the caliph himself, whom he stabbed as many as half a dozen times in the midriff. According to one account, preserved in the Hadith, when the blade slipped in, Umar groaned, The dog has killed or eaten me. He survived four days before dying of his wounds. During those four days, Umar convened an emergency deathbed council of six of the most senior Muslims, all of whom were companions of the Prophet, the select and slowly dwindling group of people who had met and followed Muhammad during his lifetime. He charged them with picking one from among their number as his successor. The man they chose was Uthman, a merchant of the prestigious Umayyah clan of the Quraysh. Uthman was of medium height, thick-set and hairy, with bandy legs but a handsome face pockmarked by smallpox scars. He had been one of the early converts to Islam and he was of good standing among the faithful, in his mid-sixties and very wealthy, albeit without the same military reputation as Umar. He was a serious and credible candidate, but in electing Uthman, the council passed over the claims of Muhammad's cousin Ali, and this decision would eventually have enormous consequences for the history of Islam and the wider world. During Uthman's 12-year caliphate, Muslim armies continued to press out ever further east and west and to develop their fighting capability in the west. In the late 640s, they campaigned in Armenia and eastern Asia Minor. In the east, they rolled ever further through the disintegrating Persian Empire, so that by 651, almost all of it was under Muslim control, with the frontier at the borders of what is now Afghanistan. Meanwhile, in the west, an army of 40,000 men began to chew through North Africa, stripping away Byzantine territory in the Exarchate of Africa, working their way at one point to within a few days' march of Carthage. Battles were fought on the high seas as well as on land. One of the outstanding generals who had emerged during the wars against Byzantium and Persia was Muawiyah ibn Abi Sufyan, a tall, bald and distinguished military officer who was a leading light in the conquest of Syria and then its governor for two decades. Having a free hand over Syria's long coastline gave Muawiyah access to many of the finest naval ports of the eastern Mediterranean, from Beirut, modern Lebanon, all the way through Palestine to Alexandria in Egypt. Like the caliph, Muawiyah was a member of the Umayyah clan, and with Uthman's backing, he now fast-tracked the development of a Muslim navy to rival the powerful Byzantine sea fleet. During the late 640s and 650s, Muslim ships conquered Cyprus and raided Crete and Rhodes. In or around 654, they sailed towards Constantinople itself. Off the coast of Lycia, in Asia Minor, they won a ferocious and very bloody naval battle against a Byzantine fleet commanded by the Emperor Constance II, a clash that is known now as the Battle of the Masts. Only dreadful storms in the aftermath of the victory and severe losses sustained in the heavy fighting 
prevented the Muslims from making a full attempt on the beating heart of the Byzantine Empire. All of this amounted, superficially at least, to a steady period of growth. Yet one had barely to scratch the surface to see that under Uthman's rule, all was not well. Although the caliph oversaw several important spiritual and domestic reforms, including the compilation of an authorised edition of the Quran, the caliphate, assembled at lightning speed, had begun to breed serious tensions and factional rivalries. In the summer of 656, they exploded. Opposition to Uthman's rule was in equal parts personal and political. As the Islamic State grew, it began to echo with grumblings, heard loudest in Egypt and Iraq, that influence and reward were being concentrated unduly in the hands of the Quraysh. Of course, this was a delicate matter. The Quraysh were both Muhammad's tribe and the people who had opposed him most bitterly at the beginning. They had provided caliphs and generals of the standard of Khalid ibn al-Walid and Syria's governor and naval admiral, Muawiyah. They were, in so far as there was such a thing, Muslim aristocracy. Yet other Arabian tribes who had participated wholeheartedly in the decades of constant military conquest felt, rightly or wrongly, that they had been denied just return on their investment and resented the arrogance with which, under Uthman, high-ranking Quraysh seemed to be allowed to help themselves to whatever they desired throughout the conquered lands. The most bitter complaints in this regard were raised by a tribe known as the Qurra, but they were not alone. Whether through ignorance or inability, during the 650s Uthman failed to heed the signs that a major revolt was looming within the empire. When he began to take action to answer grievances and settle disputes around 655, it was all too late. In the spring of 656, protesters began to travel from Egypt to Medina and demonstrate outside Uthman's house. By June, a large mob had effectively cut off the residence and placed it under siege, pelting the walls with stones and calling for Uthman's head. On the 17th of June, they got it. A small band of rebels managed to break into Uthman's compound, evade the heavy guard and confront the caliph in his rooms. After a struggle, they overpowered Uthman, beating and stabbing him to death and seriously assaulting one of his wives, who lost two of her fingers in the fight and had her buttocks groped as she fled. The rebels then pillaged Uthman's house, attacking his servants and other of his wives. Several days later, when Uthman's body was taken for burial, Medina was still in uproar and a mob threatened to stone the mourners. Rifts had opened that could not be healed. Uthman's successor as caliph was Muhammad's exceptionally pious and upstanding cousin Ali, a proven warrior and an intimate member of the Prophet's family who had grown up with Muhammad and was married to his daughter Fatima. Ali was a widely respected figure and an impeccably holy character who had the distinction of having been born inside the Kaaba itself and who had built his reputation as the most Muslim of the Muslims, a paragon of old-fashioned virtue whose partisans, known as the Shia, were entranced by his ability to expound and espouse the values given to them by the Prophet. Ali had been passed over at the time of Uthman's election, yet now his time had finally come, 
he seemed wholly unable to turn the Islamic world back towards the purity of its first golden years in the 630s and 640s. Although he had not connived at Uthman's death, Ali quickly became a polarising figure rather than a soothing one. The Umar's unity now quickly fractured and a civil war known as the First Fitna blazed into life. In the short four and a half years Ali's caliphate lasted, he was sucked into a ceaseless struggle against disaffected Uthmanites, whose leaders included such venerable Muslims as Muhammad's widow, Aisha, who on one occasion personally led troops into battle while she was mounted on a camel, and the worldly, hard-bitten governor of Syria, Muawiyah. Many of the battlegrounds in this war were in Iraq, and Ali was forced to uproot the caliphal headquarters from Medina and moved to Kufa, a garrison town on the banks of the Euphrates in modern Iraq. In the great mosque of this city, during the last days of January 661, Ali himself was murdered when a member of a radical, fundamentalist sect known as the Karajites, who thought he had compromised too much, burst in and stabbed him with a poison-tipped sword. Tales later circulated that Ali had predicted his own death, or else had been told of such a prophecy by a close companion. But it is hard to imagine he or anyone else could have predicted the legacy of his murder to more than a millennium of world history. In the chaotic months that followed Ali's murder, Muawiyah fought the late Ali's forces to a standstill and browbeat Ali's elder son, Hassan, a grandson of the Prophet Muhammad, until he accepted a large sum of gold to abdicate his claim to be caliph. Hassan was thus forced from power, and in the summer of 661, Muawiyah demanded oaths of loyalty from the leading regional commanders in the Islamic world, receiving them at holy sites in Jerusalem. He was now the caliph, the first ruler of a dynasty history has come to call the Umayyads, after his, and before him, Uthman's clan the Banu Umayyah. With Muawiyah's rise from leader of Islamic Syria to become commander of all the Muslim faithful, the age of the rightly guided caliphs came to an end and the Umayyad period began. Although the Umayyads were in power for less than a century, it was an exciting and transformational time. The capital of the Islamic world swung away from Medina to Damascus, while the boundaries of the abode of Islam stretched as far into the barbarian west as the south of France. And within this ever-expanding abode, a cultural revolution took place. Arabic and Islam permeated the societies to which the Muslims had staked their claim, while the caliphate became more worldly and less theocratic. The Umayyads were responsible for making the Arab conquests permanent and for building a true empire out of a series of conquered states. Yet at the same time, they opened divisions that would wrench the Islamic world apart. At the root of this lay the fact that the Umayyads' rise to power and subsequent consolidation of their hold on it scored deep lines into the fabric of the Umar. Ali's partisans could not and would not forget his murder. And during the reign of Muawiyah, these Alids fermented against what they saw as an illegitimate regime. At the end of Muawiyah's rule in 680, a second fitna erupted. This time, power was contested between Muawiyah's son and designated heir, Yazid, and Ali's surviving younger son, Hussein. When Muawiyah announced his intention to hand the caliphate on to his son, 
Hussein refused to take an oath of allegiance. He set out on a long march of protest from Arabia towards Iraq, and on his way was killed in a desert skirmish. He was decapitated and his head sent as a trophy to Damascus. Once more, the Umayyads had triumphed. While this bloody piece of theatre ensured the Umayyad's survival, it also cemented a schism within Islam that has survived for more than 1,300 years. The sects and factions that formed during the first and second fitnas gave birth to what we now know as the Sunni-Shia divide. Shia Muslims refused to accept the legitimacy of the Umayyad Caliphate, or indeed the legitimacy of Abu Bakr, Umar and Uthman's regimes. Instead, they insisted that Ali was Muhammad's rightful successor, the first Imam. This in turn implied an alternative succession, through Hassan and Hussein. Then, a bloodline of further Imams descended from Muhammad. Now, this was not solely a dynastic dispute. The Shia framework of Islamic history proposed a significantly different model of organising the Ummah and a different set of leadership values. The Sunni-Shia divide came to be tremendously important during the later Middle Ages, particularly, as we shall see, during the Crusading era. But it has lasted far longer than that. During the 20th century, a revived, poisonous sectarianism, established in part along Sunni-Shia lines, began to inform world geopolitics, playing a role in the interconnected Iran-Iraq war, US-led Gulf Wars, and long-running Islamic Cold War, which has pitted Saudi Arabia and Iran against one another for regional hegemony in the Middle East since 1979, as well as other painful and deadly conflicts that have been fought in Pakistan, Iraq and Syria. That all this can still be traced back to the machinations of powerful men in the 7th century AD may seem astonishing, but as so often proves the case, the Middle Ages remain with us today. The Umayyads. In 691, an extraordinary building was erected on top of the huge stone platform in Jerusalem, which centuries before had been the site of the Jewish Second Temple. That famous and sacred complex had been reduced to rubble after a siege in AD 70, when the Roman general and future emperor Titus came to Jerusalem to put down a Jewish rebellion and instigated a clash of arms and arson that entirely razed the city. The loss of the temple was a near-apocalyptic disaster for the Jewish people. Its destruction had broken the back of the rebellion, scattered the Jewish people far and wide across the Middle East, and left a permanent black mark on Jewish cultural memory. And it had never been rebuilt. At the dawn of the Middle Ages, all that remained was the vast platform, with the old city on one side and Mount of Olives on the other. Jewish prophecy held that one day, when a new Messiah came to earth and the ends of days approached, a third temple would finally be erected. But in the 7th century, the end of days seemed to be some way off. Jerusalem was under Umayyad rule, and the ruling dynasty was about to leave its own spectacular mark on the Temple Mount. The structure they placed there was the Dome of the Rock. The Dome of the Rock was, and is today, a beautiful, elegant, eight-sided shrine which shares the Temple Mount 
known to Muslims as the Noble Sanctuary or Haram al-Sharif, with two other Umayyad structures, the great Oblong al-Aqsa Mosque, Masjid al-Aqsa, and a smaller prayer house known as the Dome of the Chain. The Dome of the Rock is the most dazzling of these three structures, and in modern times it has gained iconic status, a symbol of supranational Arab fraternity which appears on knick-knacks, trinkets, postcards and cheap wall prints all over the Muslim world and beyond. It is as instantly recognisable as the Statue of Liberty or the Eiffel Tower. The dome that tops it is a round, gilded half-sphere, 25 metres at its highest point, which gleams when it catches the sun and can be seen from miles outside Jerusalem as a traveller approaches along the roads that cut through the Judean hills. The yellow limestone rock within, which the shrine was built to contain and honour, has come to be revered as the spot from which Muhammad ascended to heaven in AD 621 for a tour of paradise in the company of the angel Gabriel. Pious mosaic inscriptions and Quranic quotations written in the Kufic style of Arabic script current in the 7th century AD run for 240 metres around its inside. Yet there is more than a hint of Byzantine artistic influence in the mosaic work and decorative motifs that adorn the dome, as well as a reference in the inscription of Jesus, son of Mary, who is mentioned respectfully, albeit alongside a reminder that he should not be regarded as the son of God. The dome is often mistaken for a mosque. It is not one, but it is certainly a strange and mysterious building which abounds with evidence of the swirling and competing cultural currents of Jerusalem in the 7th century. Although almost everything we see when we look at the Dome of the Rock today is a combination of 16th-century Ottoman decoration and restoration work carried out in the second half of the 20th century, the substantive structure is still that which was commissioned by an Umayyad caliph, Abd al-Malik, in the 690s. The cost of building the shrine was said to be seven times the annual revenue of the province of Egypt. But this was not mere heedless profligacy. The vast expense lavished on such a monumental construction project, the care and craftsmanship that went into its decoration and the very impulse to build it at all are tangible hallmarks of the Umayyad Caliphate, which tell a story of 90 critical years in history, during which the Dar al-Islam was transformed from a military machine into a fully-fledged early medieval empire infused with elements of the cultures it encountered, yet highly distinctive in its own right. After the first fitna ended with Muawiyah's triumph, the hub of the caliphate shifted from the holy cities of Medina and Mecca to Damascus, the capital of Muslim-ruled Syria. This physical move also represented an important shift in mentality. Under the rightly guided caliphs, the supreme leader of the Ummah was by definition a spiritual guide entrenched in Islam's historical heartlands, as well as a political and military commander-in-chief. But once the Umayyad caliphs left Arabia, these two roles were not quite so easily combined. The caliph was not suddenly stripped of his religious dignity, but he looked very much more like an emperor than before. In part, the adoption of imperium was a matter of osmosis. 
In Syria, the Umayyads abutted directly against Byzantium. Once the Umayyad caliphs set themselves up next door to the old Roman state, their rule came to absorb a distinct flavour of Roman religious imperium. But this was not a peaceful process. The Umayyads were so intent on emulating Byzantium that between the 660s and 710s they repeatedly tried to take over the old Roman state wholesale. The result was a wide-ranging war across the Near East and Southern Mediterranean which lasted for more than a century. The two great powers clashed frequently in North Africa as Arab-led armies pushed towards the Maghreb, modern Algeria and Morocco. And they fought a series of battles on the high seas around Asia Minor, culminating in two spectacular sieges of Constantinople. These battles were nothing short of a war for the world, as the Umayyads strove to claim for Islam the most magnificent city in the Western Hemisphere and the beating heart of Byzantium. The outcomes of these clashes would shape geopolitics across Eastern Europe and the Balkans for centuries. Muawiyah launched the first direct tilt at Constantinople in the early 670s. Twenty years on from the Battle of the Masts, the general-turned-caliph was as determined as ever to prove that Arab ships could match the notoriously agile and dangerous Greek vessels. So year after year, he sent ships, often crewed by Christian sailors fighting under Muslim commanders, to attack islands and ports in the Aegean Sea menacing the sea routes around the Byzantine capital and setting up a command centre at Cyzicus, which lay directly across the Sea of Marmara from Constantinople. According to the Greek chronicler Theophanes, they used this base to launch military engagements every day from morning until evening, nibbling constantly at Byzantine defences. Then in the autumn of 677, a full assault commenced. It was an epic, furious encounter. The Byzantine Empire may only have been a shadow of the once unassailable Roman state, but in the 670s they had a secret weapon. Military technicians working for the Emperor Constantine IV, reigned 654-85, led by a scientist from southern Syria known as Kalinikos, had perfected a deadly oil-based jelly, known variously as Roman fire, marine fire, artificial fire, or most famously, Greek fire. When this incendiary liquid was sprayed under pressure, flamethrower-style, from jets mounted on the prows of specially equipped Byzantine fireships, it turned everything it clung to into an oily fireball. Greek fire burned in the air, it burned on water, it could only be put out by smothering it with sand or diluting it with vinegar, and it could obliterate whole fleets during the course of a single engagement. Greek fire was a game-changing weapons system, and a military secret the Byzantine state would guard closely for nearly 500 years, so closely indeed that the knowledge of how to manufacture and deploy it was ultimately forgotten. In the meantime, however, it became notorious as one of the foulest horrors of medieval battle. The equivalent of First World War poison gas, the napalm used in Vietnam, or the white phosphorus deployed against civilians in the recent Syrian civil war. Its testing ground was the war against the Umayyads. In 678, 
The emperor turned Greek fire on Muslim ships and sent them away from the sea defences of Constantinople with their masts smoking and sails blazing. As they scattered, they were smashed by powerful storms off the coast of Asia Minor. Up to 30,000 men drowned. The fleet was dashed to pieces and perished entirely, wrote Theophanes. It was a triumph for Byzantium, a pivotal point in the history of warfare and a round humiliation for the Muslims. The second fitna of 680-692 interrupted the Umayyads' arm wrestle with Byzantium, but not for good. A generation later, in 717, the Caliph Suleiman tried once more to claim Constantinople as a grand prize for the Muslims. Encouraged by political unrest and plotting within the Byzantine Empire, Suleiman sent a land army swarming towards the city's legendarily massive landward walls, while a rebuilt Muslim fleet tested its luck and skill in the waters once more. Accounts of the Second Siege of Constantinople describe a scene even more dramatic than the first. On land, famine and disease ripped through the Arab armies. Theophanes claimed, they ate all of their dead animals, namely horses, asses and camels. It is said that they even cooked in ovens and ate dead men, and their own dung which they leavened. This is likely poetic slander rather than factual repertage. Still, conditions were plainly awful. And while starvation ruled on land, Greek fire once again lit up the seas. Fiery hail fell upon the Arab ships and brought the seawater to a boil, and as the pitch of their keels dissolved, their ships sank in the deep, crews and all, wrote Theophanes. The Byzantine capital was saved again. Once more, the Umayyads had come agonisingly close to wiping out Byzantium. Once more, they had fallen at the gates of Constantinople. Rather than installing the caliph there, the siege of 717-18 only succeeded in helping a scheming Byzantine general, Leo the Isaurian, to depose the reigning emperor, Theodosius III, and claim the throne for himself. The experience put paid forever to Umayyad ambitions in Asia Minor, and in retrospect, many historians have seen the failure of the second siege as a turning point in Western history, the moment when the spread of the first Islamic armies towards the Balkans was halted. Afterwards, Constantinople remained in Christian hands until the end of the Middle Ages and Islam only burst through the old Roman territories into Eastern Europe with the Ottoman conquests of the 15th and 16th centuries. The counterfactual game that asks what if the Umayyads had taken Byzantium drives towards an alternative reality in which minarets and not church spires dotted the skyline of medieval Europe. The real events of 717 to 718 are often supposed to have turned the world away from such a fate. Whether they did or not is unknowable, but what is incontestable is that the shape of the Umayyad Caliphate and of the Muslim Near East was determined by the failure of the two sieges of Constantinople in 677 to 78 and 717 to 718. Instead of expanding through Asia Minor and the Balkans then, under the Umayyad caliphs of the late 7th and early 8th centuries, Islam branched out east and west. Having seized Persia, Muslim armies eventually made their way into what is now Pakistan, Afghanistan and Transoxania, the Central Asian stands of Uzbekistan, Tajikistan, Turkmenistan and Kyrgyzstan. 
They also marched through North Africa, eventually overrunning Byzantine Carthage in 698, which struck a death knell for Byzantine control in the region. Then they pressed on, through Algeria, towards what is now Morocco, the western coast of the continent. In 711, they crossed the Strait of Gibraltar and began to ride through the Iberian Peninsula. The arrival of Islam in modern Spain and Portugal created the territory known for centuries as Al-Andalus. According to Al-Tabari, the doomed Caliph Uthman had once claimed the only way to take Constantinople was by first taking control of Spain. But it is not very likely that such grand strategic thinking underpinned the Umayyad invasion in 711. It was much more probable that, having torn a path through North Africa, temperate and fertile southern Europe seemed a better prospect of further expansion than the merciless expanse of the Sahara. And no doubt the task seemed straightforward. The old Roman province of Hispania lay in the hands of the Visigoths. And for all their success during the age of barbarian migrations, the Visigoths had not made the leap to become a major regional power. The people of Morocco had been sailing across the straits to pillage Visigoth territory for generations, and now there was every reason to think that the Umayyad war machine, bolstered with Moroccan troops, might follow the same path. In the event, they did not so much follow the path as race along it at full pelt. Under the energetic leadership of the general Musa ibn Nusayr, the Umayyad's forces ran the Visigoths out of Spain inside three years. One traumatised account preserved by the author of the so-called Mozarabic Chronicler recalls that Musa cast down fine cities with the burning fire and condemned to crucifixion the senior and powerful of the generations while butchering the young and infants with daggers. At the Battle of Guadalete in 711, the Visigothic king Roderick was slain and his kingdom lay open to the invaders. Even if all limbs were turned into tongue, human nature will never at all be able to tell of the ruins of Spania and indeed such great evils that befell all of it, the Mozarabic chronicler wailed. In 714, the last Visigothic king, Ardo, took power in a pathetic kingdom reduced to a strip of land between Béziers, today in France, and Barcelona. He clung on there for around seven years, and when he died in around 720 or 21, the Visigoths were done. Whether this rapid fall of a ruling power that was 300 years old stemmed more from the fragility of their rule or from the sheer irresistibility of the Muslims on the charge is a moot point, and not an easy one to answer given the sketchiness of 8th century chronicle sources. But they were hardly the only regime to have melted away before Arab swords, and their retreat marked a sea change in the history of the Iberian Peninsula. By the 720s, then, the Umayyads were in control of the largest conglomeration of territory since the collapse of the Greater Roman Empire in the 5th century. They had also set about transforming it. The great levers of change in this respect were language and architecture and the two most influential figures were the 5th and 6th Umayyad caliphs, Abd al-Malik, 685-705, and his son al-Walid, 705-715. The elder of these, Abd al-Malik, became caliph in the midst of the second fitna, when provinces across the Muslim world were in open revolt. 
His first priority was to restore the unity and stability of Umayyad power across the still-expanding Islamic world. He did so by centralising and imperialising authority, appointing powerful provincial governors who were closely accountable to his court in Damascus, including the supremely capable Al-Hajjaj ibn Yusuf, who was critical to maintaining Umayyad authority in Iraq, and Al-Malik's brother, Abd al-Aziz, who kept a steady hand on Egyptian affairs from Fustat. But as well as making good personal appointments, al-Malik also took revolutionary measures to press the image and reality of Umayyad power into the daily lives of ordinary people everywhere, not only of the Muslim faithful, but non-Muslims as well. One of al-Malik's more important reforms was his introduction of an Islamic coinage. When the first Muslims rode out of Arabia, they had taken care not to disrupt the valuable commercial and monetary systems of the lands they came to conquer. But by the 690s, things had changed. Al-Malik ordered the mints across his former Byzantine and Persian provinces to strike a series of coins, the design of which trumpeted the nature of the new Umayyad empire. In place of the gold Byzantine solidus, which had been familiar currency around the Mediterranean since the age of Constantine the Great, Umayyad-controlled mints now began producing a coin known as a dinar. The first of these to be designed bore the image of the caliph, standing in quasi-imperial splendour, a sign that al-Malik was trying to out-emperor the emperor in Constantinople. By 697, however, this iconography, which sat ill with Muhammad's pronouncements against graven images, had been abandoned and dinars emerged from the mints emblazoned with verses from the Quran and other godly phrases stamped in Kufic script, praising the name Allah and celebrating his mercy and compassion. Coin production has always been a tool of political propaganda as well as commerce, and the Umayyad coin reform was no different. Across the Muslim world, old gold was now recalled to Damascus with menaces to be turned into dinars. These were pure, pious and consistent with the Quran's apparent position on numismatics. And give full measure when you measure, and weigh with an even balance. At the same time, although with a little less urgency, silver and copper coins, dirhams, were also redesigned, reminted and recirculated. Silver coins were struck all over the Muslim world, while gold was tightly controlled from Damascus. Dirhams therefore often matched the weights and shapes of coins current in the regions where they were circulated, but everywhere the fundamental shift in decoration remained the same. Gone were images of old, infidel kings. In their place, pithy Arabic pieties advertising Muhammad's revelation were soon passing every day through the hands of merchants and market-goers from the banks of the river Tagus in Spain to the river Indus in deepest Asia. This change did not take place in a vacuum. When Caliph al-Malik first remade the Islamic coinage, the language that decorated his coins was unfamiliar to most of even the educated people who used them. As we have already seen, the early caliphs left in place the monetary systems of the conquered territories. They also declined to force Islam upon the masses. The Muslims had preferred to tax infidels and to keep their colonists segregated in newly founded garrison towns. The result was that the Ummah was spread widely across the world, but not very deeply. Al-Malik set out to change this, 
He worked, in time-honoured fashion, through the middle classes. Around the year 700, al-Malik ordered that public servants across the Umayyad world should use one language only, Arabic. The commonest tongues used by the non-Arabs who made up the vast majority of the caliphate's population were Greek and Persian. Al-Malik made no provision against people speaking them as they pleased, but he decreed that they could no longer do so while working for him. At a stroke, the Christians, Jews and Zoroastrians, who had found gainful employment as scribes, middle managers and government bureaucrats, were faced with a stark choice. Unless they knew or very quickly learned Arabic, they were out of a job. This simple administrative change was in fact a moment of juddering cultural importance in the history of the Islamic world, for it ensured that there would be an Islamic world in perpetuity, rather than a short-lived federation of former Roman and Persian territories ruled over by a thin, monotheistic elite. As we saw in chapter 1, the Roman Empire and its pomp had been bound together over millions of square miles, in part because Latin was a common language of cultural discourse as well as base communication. Al-Malik now set Arabic on a similar path. By enforcing its use as a universal tongue across the caliphate, he transformed it into a global language of record and inquiry. Arabic became a lingua franca every bit as potent as Latin and Greek. As a result, it was as useful to scholars as it was to civil servants. During the Middle Ages, Arab scholars compiled, translated and preserved hundreds of thousands of texts from across the classical world, and the Arab-speaking Islamic world inherited the Greek and Latin world's position as the West's most advanced intellectual and scientific society. This would not have been possible without al-Malik's decision in the 690s to impose the Arabic language on the Umayyad Caliphate's bureaucrats. Yet that was not all. Arabic was more than a tool of bureaucracy and study. Unlike Latin, for example, Arabic was the language in which God himself had spoken. The Quran had been revealed to Muhammad in Arabic. It was preserved in Arabic. The first Muslims were Arabs, who were by definition Arabic speakers. The call to prayer, Adhan, that had rung out from mosques ever since it was sung from the Kaaba when Muhammad captured Mecca in 630, was made in lilting musical Arabic. It was impossible to imagine Islam without the language of its first people, and once that language became mandatory for all who wished to interact with the state, the faith did not follow too far behind. From the early 8th century, Arabization was gradually followed by conversion across the Muslim-held territories, a shift that can still be seen, felt and heard in almost every part of the old medieval caliphate in the 21st century. In 705, al-Malik died and was succeeded by his son al-Walid, who found himself in charge of a treasury filled with new gold dinars. His father's centralising efforts had created a highly efficient financial system to funnel tax revenues and the booty taken during new conquests back to Damascus. True, much of this revenue was required to maintain the large standing armies and navies that pushed the frontiers of the Dar al-Islam east and west, and to fight Byzantine fireships in the stormy waters of the Mediterranean. Yet even after these huge expenses, al-Walid enjoyed a healthy budgetary surplus and he used it 
to develop his father's policy of rooting Islam in the fabric of the early medieval world. Al-Malik pointed the way his son would follow when he commissioned the Dome of the Rock in Jerusalem in the 690s, pioneering pseudo-imperial monumental building with a distinctive Islamic flavour. Al-Walid took this idea and ran with it. In doing so, he created some of the most extraordinary buildings conceived in the last 2,000 years, many of which stand today, not just as historical relics, but as living, breathing buildings for Muslim worshippers to commune with God, one another, and their medieval past. At the heart of this epic project was a triptych of mosques at the three most important cities in the Umayyad world outside Mecca. These were the Great Mosque of Damascus, Al-Aqsa Mosque in Jerusalem, and the Prophet's Mosque, Masjid An-Nabawi, in Medina, which was extensively renovated, enlarged and modified to house the graves of Muhammad and the caliphs Abu Bakr and Umar. These three vast congregational houses of worship spoke in different ways to critical stages in the Muslims' expansive history, while showcasing the wealth and imperial self-confidence of the Umayyad caliphs. The Great Mosque of Damascus, built in 706, is today the least altered of the three, and in it, visitors can still see how the plan, purpose and unique decorative styles of the Islamic world were developing in the first years of the 8th century. The mosque was placed on a site that had originally been a pagan temple to Hadad and Jupiter, and then a Christian church to John the Baptist, which the Umayyads bought and demolished. The mosque that arose on this hallowed spot included the first known concave mirab, a feature in the mosque wall indicating the direction of Mecca, which is a unique and essential part of every mosque in the world today. Yet this is set within a building that is decorated with mosaics far more reminiscent of the great churches of Byzantium than later monumental mosques would be. There are no representations of people, but there are many intricate images of houses, palaces, places of worship, trees, rivers and foliage, which suggest earth and paradise all at once and hint at a style of Islamic art that borrowed heavily from the Christian tradition of the time. Yet if the Great Mosque of Damascus seems exotic and strange in this respect, it is also the first of many great mosques which have, over the centuries, absorbed local styles and fused them with uniquely Islamic elements. The elaborate mosques of the late medieval Ottoman Empire, which fairly bubble with elaborate domes evoking the basilicas of the Eastern Orthodox Christian Church. Structures like the magnificent Mughal-era Badshahi Mosque in Lahore, Pakistan, fashioned from red sandstone in a seamless blend of Indian and Persian styles. The ultra-modern Istiklal Mosque in Jakarta, Indonesia, erected in 1987 at the height of the New Formalism movement that produced notable American municipal buildings, such as the World Trade Center in New York City, the John F. Kennedy Center for the Performing Arts in Washington, D.C., and the Forum in Los Angeles. The architectural confidence to create mosques that spoke to Islam's unique and deliberately exclusionary character while also borrowing liberally from the world around them can be traced directly back to the age of the Umayyads and particularly to the caliphate of Al-Walid. By the time Al-Walid died in 715, the Umayyads stood at the peak of their powers. 
the conquest of Visigothic Spain was well underway. Great houses of worship had been built. A massive scheme of public works was underway throughout the Islamic State, as the Caliph invested in new roads and canals, street lighting in cities and irrigation ditches in the countryside. Arabic had been instituted as the language of commerce and administration, as well as prayer, and the ground was laid for Islam's extension into the lives of millions of people across the medieval world. The irksome defeat in the first siege of Constantinople lay in the rapidly receding past, while the second siege of 717-718 lay in the unrealised future. This was a mighty set of accomplishments whose consequences would endure for centuries. But they would not endure long under the Umayyads themselves, for within 35 years the dynasty would be destroyed and the limits of expansion reached. It is to the end of the Umayyads that we must now turn, as we bring our story of the Arab conquests to a close. The Black Flag Rises In 732, exactly 100 years after Muhammad's death, Umayyad warriors swept over the Pyrenees and raided the lands of the Franks. They destroyed palaces and robbed churches in the Duchy of Aquitaine. They crushed a Frankish army in battle by the banks of the river Garonne. They plundered mightily, taking male and female slaves and 700 of the best girls, besides eunuchs, horses, medicine, gold, silver and vases. The Muslims who charged over the mountains had steeled themselves for a long campaign. Their leader, Abd al-Rahman, had in his sights a grand basilica just outside the city of Tours, some 750 kilometres deep into territory ruled over by a Frankish dynasty known as the Merovingians. The basilica was named after the long-dead Christian hero Saint Martin, whose tomb lay within. During his life in the 4th century, Saint Martin had quit the Roman army to become a soldier of Christ and subsequently performed miracles such as exorcising demons from angry cows and setting fire to the Emperor Valentinian's buttocks. Now his cloak was venerated as a holy relic, his shrine was a site of Christian reverence and the basilica was the repository of much movable plunder. Yet before Abd al-Rahman reached the doors of the basilica, he ran into trouble. It arrived in the form of Charles Martel. Not quite a king, Martel was nonetheless one of the dominant aristocrats in the Frankish realm. As we shall soon see, he would one day be recognised as the founder of the Carolingian dynasty that produced illustrious rulers including Pippin the Short and Charlemagne. But in 732, when the Umayyads approached, Charles Martel held the prime ministerial title of Mayor of the Palace of Austrasia. His nickname, Martellus, meant the hammer. He was, in the words of one near contemporary, a mighty man of war who took boldness as his counsellor. On this occasion, a Sunday in October, he had rallied an army to defend Tours and to protect the southern lands of the Franks from conquest. Having learned about the depredations of the Arabs from the Duke of Aquitaine, Martel sought out Abd al-Rahman on the road between Tours and Poitiers. After a seven-day period of phony war, he brought the Muslims to battle. When the fighting broke out, Martel lined up his men, ordered them on foot in a shield wall, as immobile and rugged as a glacier, and marshalled them so that, 
With great blows of their swords, they hewed down the Arabs. Drawn up in a band around their chief, the people of the Austrasians carried all before them. Chroniclers, looking back on Charles Martel's victory, exhibiting the usual combination of wishful thinking, poetic exaggeration and bravado that characterised medieval estimations of armies and massacres, credited the mayor with slaying between 300,000 and 375,000 Muslim warriors, among them Abd al-Rahman himself. Frankish losses were calculated at just 1,500 men. The Battle of Tours, also known as the Battle of Poitiers, was well known to contemporaries and has been celebrated by Western writers for more than 1,000 years. Its salient details and exemplary moral lesson were fixed within no more than three years of its conclusion by writers including the Venerable Bede, who wrote in his Ecclesiastical History of the English People, completed at some time before Bede's death at Jarrow in England in May 735, that a dreadful plague of Saracens ravaged France with miserable slaughter, but they not long after in that country received the punishment due to their wickedness. Many others followed Bede's example, both in the Middle Ages and the present day. To the chronicler of Saint-Denis, writing more than 600 years later, during the apogee of French sacral kingship in the 13th century, Charles Martel saved the Church of St. Martin, the city and the whole country from the enemies of Christian faith. To Edward Gibbon, writing his Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire between 1776 and 1789, the defeat of Abd al-Rahman saved all of Europe from Islamification and prevented an alternative history from unfolding, one in which Arab conquests reached Poland and the highlands of Scotland, where... The interpretation of the Quran would now be taught in the schools of Oxford, and her pulpits might demonstrate to a circumcised people the sanctity and truth of the revelation of Mahomet. Two hundred years later, during the 1970s, the Charles Martel group formed in France as a right-wing terrorist organisation devoted to opposing Algerian migration to France through a series of bombings. In 21st century America, an organisation called the Charles Martel Society organises white nationalists and publishes an overtly racist journal giving a platform for pseudo-scholarly articles on subjects including eugenics and racial segregation. So even today, Martel's victory is regarded as a historical turning point, a battle that changed the world the moment at which the seemingly unstoppable sweep of Arab conquests in the century following Muhammad's death was checked. Yet of course, as we have already seen, this is far too simple a reading of history. For one thing, it is not totally clear that Abd al-Rahman wished to conquer the kingdom of the Franks at all. The most useful Mediterranean ports between the Pyrenees and the Rhone were already in Muslim hands by the 730s and had been pacified with a judicious use of exemplary violence. Bishops were occasionally burned alive in their churches, while rumours had spread up from Visigothic Spain telling of Berber troops boiling and eating obstinate Christians, alongside the routine application of the jizya. Tours and the surrounding areas were interesting fields of plunder but it is no certain thing that in the 730s they were being lined up for full Muslim conquest. Moreover, the Battle of Tours alone was nothing when placed alongside two earlier defeats, 
which stand as much more convincing examples of historical turning points for the caliphate's expansion. The first was the failed 717-718 siege of Constantinople, described above. The second is the Battle of Aksu, also in 717, in which an Arab-led army, bolstered by troops of Turkic and Tibetan origin, was wiped out by the Tang Chinese in the Xinjiang region of modern China. This defeat heralded a gradual winding down of the Muslim charge eastwards. By the 750s, the borders of the Islamic world and Tang China had been settled in Central Asia, where the two powers shared control of the Silk Road trading routes. The middle decades of the 8th century marked the point when the Islamic conquests hit their geopolitical limits, not only in Europe, but across the world. Charles Martel's victory in 732 was only one small part of that much larger process. In fact, the most significant incident which fixed Western Europe's medieval future and the place of Islam within it occurred between June 747 and August 750, when the Umayyad dynasty was overthrown in Damascus. The causes and course of this revolution were complex, but in short, various dissident groups within the caliphate, including Shiites and non-Arab Muslim converts known as Moali, who were excluded from many of the legal privileges of the Ummah, banded together under the leadership of a mysterious and secretive character from eastern Persia known as Abu Muslim al-Khorasani. Beginning with a local rebellion in the eastern city of Merv, they spread the spirit of full revolution throughout the caliphate, igniting a third fitna which ended with military defeat for the caliph Marwan II at the Battle of Zab, Iraq, in January 750. Three months later, Damascus fell, and after this, the surviving members of the dynasty were hunted and assassinated one by one. Marwan was murdered after he fled to Egypt and replaced by a Jordanian Arab called Abu al-Abbas al-Safa, whose sobriquet translates to English as blood spiller. Al-Safa was thus the founder of a new dynasty named the Abbasids, who claimed descent from Muhammad's uncle Al-Abbas and identified themselves with a plain black flag. The Abbasids made sweeping changes to the Islamic empire they had wrested from the Umayyads. They moved the capital 800 kilometers east from Damascus to a new city in Iraq called Baghdad and devolved sweeping political and legal powers to local rulers throughout the caliphate, known as emirs. The Abbasids also worked hard to integrate non-Arab Muslims into the Ummah on roughly equal terms. As a result, theirs was a time of political fracture within the Islamic world, when emirs gained steadily greater independence from the caliphs, and schismatic Sunni and Shia blocs emerged, as well as rival dynasties such as the Fatimids in Egypt and Almoravids and Almohads in modern Morocco. Never again would caliphs wield as much political and spiritual power over such a massive swathe of territory as they had during the heyday of the rightly guided caliphs and the Umayyads. Nevertheless, the Abbasid age, which lasted until 1258 when the caliphate was destroyed by the Mongols, would come to be known as the Golden Age of Islam, during which art, architecture, poetry, philosophy, medicine and scientific inquiry flourished. In the 8th century, 
the Abbasids stole the secrets of paper manufacturing technology from the Tang Chinese, and in the 13th, they learned the secrets of making gunpowder from the Song. They assembled massive libraries, such as the House of Wisdom in Baghdad, where millions of pages of books were translated, copied and studied for the benefit of society at large. Many of the late medieval advances of the European Renaissance would have been quite impossible without the preservation of classical knowledge and technology from across the world in Islamic institutions like the House of Wisdom. Yet the Abbasid age was also one in which the Muslim world's centre of gravity shifted, like its capital, to the east. The caliphs now sat geographically and culturally removed from the old Roman territories that, along with Arabia, had formed the core of the first two caliphates. Developments in the Dar al-Islam therefore affected the Western world at one or more steps of remove. One of the great and lasting stories of the Middle Ages is one of increasing ignorance and hostility between the Islamic East and Christian West, a distinction that would have made very little sense at this point in our story, when the Umayyads were invested and engaged directly in affairs of the Western Mediterranean as well as the Near and Middle East. This supposed civilizational divide is today a favourite trope of the far right and extremists of various persuasions throughout the world. It owes at least part of its genesis to events that were rooted in the 8th century AD. Having said all this, however, we should also remember that although the Umayyad Caliphate was overthrown in 750, the Umayyads themselves lived on and their legacy can be felt powerfully in one particular region of the West today, in the southern halves of Spain and Portugal, which had been conquered so efficiently during Al-Walid's reign in 711-714. Amid the tumult of the Abbasid revolution, one of the old Caliph Al-Malik's grandchildren ran away from Damascus, hotly pursued by would-be assassins, intent on adding him to the list of slaughtered Umayyads. Having evaded them, he wandered in exile for six years, making a long clandestine journey through North Africa until he arrived in southern Spain, where he proclaimed himself as caliph in his own right and established an independent capital in the sweltering city of Cordoba, in the hottest part of Spain, where temperatures rival the roiling heat of Arabia. Over the following two decades, he steadily brought the Muslim territories in Iberia in what became known as the Emirate of Cordova. Like Baghdad and the city of Caruan in the province of Ifriqiya, modern Tunisia, which remained part of the Abbasid Caliphate until the early 10th century, Cordoba gained immense renown in the Middle Ages as a city of learning and extraordinarily rich culture. Its population bloomed to around 400,000 inhabitants, a scale that put Cordoba comfortably in the League of Constantinople or even ancient Rome. The religious life of the city pulsed around the Great Mosque of Cordoba. Built on a scale to rival the jewel of the Umayyad Empire in Damascus, it absorbed Roman stonework and Moorish decorative influences and was paid for with the rich plunder taken from the vanquishing of the Visigoths and raids into neighbouring Frankish lands. For a century between around AD 900 and AD 1000, the city of Cordoba and the Rump Umayyad Emirate it controlled had a strong claim to be the most advanced and sophisticated state in Western Europe, 
and the fabulous legacy of that time is still tangibly embedded in southern Spanish and Portuguese culture. The very names of the region still bear clear Arab influence. Lisbon, Al-Usbuna, Gibraltar, Jabal Tariq, Malaga, Malacca, Ibiza, Yabiza, Alicante, Al-Lacant, all carry a heavy flavour of Arabic in their names, as do many other well-known Iberian towns, cities and tourist destinations. The glorious palace of Alhambra in Granada is the best known, but the Alcázar in Seville, still a working Spanish royal palace, was built on the foundations of a late medieval Muslim ruler's fortress. The Arab baths in Jaén, meanwhile, hint at a fragrant and sophisticated civic culture in Islamic Spain, which would have comfortably stood comparison with old Roman Hispania. There was a Muslim presence in Spain throughout the Middle Ages, and although Islamic rule was steadily denuded from the 11th century onwards by the Western Crusades known as the Reconquista, it was not until January 1492 that the last Muslim emir was forced off the mainland to live out a life of exile in Morocco. This amounted to more than seven centuries in which the Iberian Peninsula was at least in part connected formally to the Dar al-Islam, and that long association has been a live and sometimes deadly part of Spain's national and cultural history in the modern age. It is not universally a cause for celebration. In what is today a strongly Catholic country, there are plenty who are uncomfortable with Spain's Islamic heritage. By no means were all of medieval Spain's Muslim rulers enlightened intellectuals devoted to the twin causes of building libraries and public baths. The Berber dynasties known as the Almoravids and Almohads, who controlled Al-Andalus from the 11th to the 13th centuries, were austere zealots responsible for much violent oppression and persecution of non-Muslims. A degree of popular prejudice and suspicion of the Moro, the Moor or Spanish Muslim, whose true loyalties supposedly lie in North Africa, is a continuing feature of Spain's political discourse. Half-memories of the medieval past have often been blended with less faraway recollections of the course of the 20th century Spanish Civil War, which began in Morocco and involved tens of thousands of Muslim troops from North Africa fighting on the side of the nationalists under General Francisco Franco. This all amounts to a complicated, delicate situation. History continues to swirl around us, shaping attitudes, belief, prejudices and worldviews. So it is that the word of God revealed in a cave in the Hejaz in the 7th century still affects the everyday lives of men and women living in the era of the smartphone and self-driving car. <laughs>